0: Hey, it's Leah. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to tell you about this other show called Stuff the British Stole. It's from CBC Podcast and Australia Radio National, and it's got all the story elements I love. It's got colonial theft. It's got museums denying that theft. It's got intrigue. It's got jokes by Australians. Join host Mark Furnell as he picks one artifact and takes you on the wild, evocative, sometimes funny, and often tragic adventure of how it got to where it is today. Check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen.
1: This is a CBC
2: Podcast.
0: Just a warning, this episode contains strong language and content because history does sometimes.
2: In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist. If a person does all these things over a period of time, he must be a communist. But there are other communists who don't show their real faces, who work more silently.
3: Hey, Leah. Hey, Fallon. I love a bit of old-timey paranoia to start off an episode.
0: I know, I know. I think it sets up uh, what we're going to be talking about today really well. It's the paranoia of the 40s and 50s. And this paranoia extended to the fear that queer people during the Cold War era were a threat to national security. And that they were communists, maybe. You know, communists were viewed as the enemy at this time. Right. And this is one that
3: we have talked about covering for a while now. This is the story of how Canada attempted to purge queer people out of the civil service and the military.
0: Yes, and one of the ways they did this was by creating a device that was supposed to be able to detect homosexuality. It was nicknamed the fruit machine.
3: Great, great name. Let's begin at the beginning. Uh, tell us why in the world our government thought the key to
0: defeating communism was ousting gay people from their jobs. Okay, so World War II ends... Everyone is exhausted, and many Western nations are very wary of the USSR.
3: USSR stood for the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or Soviet Union for short.
0: The USSR, the USA, China, France, and Great Britain all fought together to defeat Nazi Germany. Canada was aligned with Great Britain, and all of these countries worked together. They essentially started what we now know as the UN, but The whole time, their friendship was more of a work colleague that you can accomplish a big project with, but don't want to see after 5 p.m. and try to avoid at lunch. (laughs) Right. Uh, You block them on social media, but you (laughs) smile at them in the hallway. Exactly. And then you have this really big moment that happens that many historians point to as being the start of the Cold War. And this moment happened to occur in Canada. So Canada's taking the stage by kicking off the Cold War, so uh, (laughs) what's the big event? The Western countries have their fears of the USSR confirmed in 1945 when a Soviet intelligence officer named Igor Guzenko defects in Ottawa. He took 109 secret intelligence documents out of the Soviet embassy in Ottawa and gave them to Canadian officials. And then Western governments freaked out once they looked at the documents because they realized national secrets had been going out the door for a while.
3: OK, so that's huge, right? The fears
0: are confirmed that the Soviet spies are everywhere. Right. And the whole thing results in 20 Canadian espionage trials and dozens of convictions. Guzenko and his family are put in a witness protection program in a small town somewhere in Ontario. Um because who's going to look for anybody in a small town in Ontario? So it really worked, actually. Really you just, protected you. You just
3: really made some small towns in Ontario angry right
0: now. I just do hey to know. I grew know up that. in a small town in Alberta, so like, yeah, I understand. Okay, I understand. Okay. But anyway, there, there are ripple effects that happen all around the world from this. It was such a big deal that in 1948, they made a Hollywood movie about it. I want to play a clip for you. And what you should know is that for no reason, in particular, everyone who is Russian in this movie speaks with American accents.
3: I love it.
2: What are those? Diaries. Cables to and from Moscow. Agents reports on the atomic bomb, high explosives, radar, false passports, even notes on the secret meeting between Roosevelt and Churchill in Canada. A hundred documents the whole story in the agent's own handwriting what they've been doing in Canada they'll surely kill you when they find out
3: those accents sound more Rhode Island than Russian
0: (laughs) yeah the furthest east I would give them is maybe Wisconsin Hmm. but that's being Mm -hmm. generous Mm -hmm. Um, okay so the stage has been set the cold war begins
3: Are are you gonna explain it?
0: I was (laughs) I was hoping you would jump in. (laughs) Well,
3: how about I interject if you if you leave anything out?
0: Okay, it will be a group participation explanation. But really quickly, the Cold War was a battle between two sides, the Soviet Union, other communist countries, as well as many Eastern European nations were on one side. And on the other, you had the United States and other democratic countries, including many Western European nations on the opposite side. It
3: began after World War II in 1945 and lasted until 1991, as evidence in every spy and thriller movie from this time period, because the Russians, they're, you know, they're always the bad guys.
0: Always the bad guys. That's right. And it was called the Cold War because the U.S. and the Soviet Union never had direct armed conflict with each other. They spent a lot of time spying on each other and using scientists to develop different, uh, you know, atomic bombs and nuclear weapons to scare the crap out of each other and, frankly, the rest of the world. But make no mistake, this was as bloody a war as any. These two superpowers fought proxy wars all over the world with catastrophic effects.
3: A proxy wars, like, uh, like they sent others to fight wars for
0: them? Like, they funded opposing sides in conflicts to stand in for them around the world. I mean, everywhere. Oh, okay. In Korea and Vietnam, Angola, Afghanistan, El Salvador. And that's just a small sampling of the wars and conflicts that happened as a result of this. You know, there also were invasions, destabilizations of governments and coups that happened in the Congo, Iran, Chile. Ethiopia, Grenada, Indonesia and Guatemala. Again, not even the whole list. At the core it was communism versus democracy, east versus west, and as Canada was a member of the Allied Forces, you know, we were aligned with the US and Great Britain. One of the biggest fears was a nuclear attack. Each side was racing to get better technology and trade secrets. It was just a huge fear that this tension would come to a head and the entire world would suffer.
3: If you look back you know, into this time, people were constantly told to... You know, practice drills in case of a nuclear attack. Despite the fact the government knew it wouldn't help, they started having populations do them to prevent panic. They wanted people to feel that they could save themselves.
2: What if a warning siren sounds? What should you do? Look for cover, the nearest cover. Don't try to make it home unless home is the nearest place to go. Don't hesitate, find cover.
0: Now, to learn just why queer people became the focus of the government during this time, I called up Gary Kinsman. He's co-author of the book, The Canadian War on Queers, along with Patricia Gentile.
1: Okay, so my, my name is Gary Kinsman. Um, I'm a retired university professor. I came out in 1973, um, so I've been out for a long time, and I've done a lot of writing on what I would sort of describe as the history and sociology of sexual and gender regulation in Canada. I'm a longtime activist in um, the gay liberation or queer liberation movements, but I've also been involved in anti-poverty movements and other social justice movements as well.
0: So Gary told me that the Cold War had this other aspect to it.
1: It includes all sorts of social struggles that occur around the world. working-class struggles, struggles of immigrants. Um, Eventually, we see Black power and red power movements. All of these get sort of implicated within the context of the Cold War. It's also very much a Cold War against various different social change, social justice movements around the world.
0: So one of the major things that happened out of all of this was defining who the enemy is, you know, what's considered normal. And normal was Western white, heterosexual, you know, the patriarchy, a, a male-centered world. So gender codes were strict. You know, we see all those things of the women in the, the 40s and 50s and how they have to look very perfect and the men have to look a certain way. It's very mad men. People have seen mad men. People who were seen outside of this norm, like gays and lesbians, were were considered abnormal.
3: But also being outside of this norm, you know, would connect you to this other side, this mysterious other side.
0: Right, the the bad guys, exactly.
1: Being a homosexual was actually seen as being a sort of fellow traveler with the communists, right, Um, as being agents for the Soviet Empire, Um, which, of course, was not true at all, but this was sort of how the story went. It was assumed that if you violated sexual and gender boundaries, um, as it was suggested that lots of homosexual people did, you were also violating political boundaries, and therefore uh, not following sort of sexual and gender conventions was seen as being akin to or associated with um, with with communism
3: so so if you 're gay, you're a communist. That makes sense.
0: (laughs) I know. It's hard not to laugh because it's so ludicrous. Obviously, gender or sexual orientation has nothing to do with a person's political beliefs. But because they assumed this, it gives you an idea of how paranoid and homophobic the powers that be were at this time. There's a term for it. It's called moral panic.
3: Okay, so moral panic is taking a real fear of something like war or communism and transferring it onto something else, in this case, the LGBTQ plus community.
0: Yes. And by the 1950s, America is holding these investigations to find out who or who isn't a communist, you know, who or who isn't a homosexual, although they usually use terms like deviant or sex pervert. And from this, they concluded
1: that homosexuals have a character weakness that leads us to be susceptible to blackmail. Um, And the supposition was that, therefore, we would be specially susceptible to blackmail by Soviet agents and would therefore be able to reveal um, national security secrets or state secrets.
3: So there was a thinking that if you were gay, you could easily be blackmailed into divulging sensitive information. Yes.
0: And the U.S. and the U.K. really led these investigations and started putting policies in place that would drive gay people out of their jobs. Canada then followed suit to be in step with their allies. It's not to say that Canada wasn't persecuting or arresting gay people before this. They, there were cases. They totally were. But it ramped up incredibly in the late 50s. And the majority of Canadians at the time, you know, they supported this. Um, You can hear it
3: in this CBC clip from 1959. This is a journalist interviewing people on the street in
1: Vancouver. Do you think that they are in any way a danger to our society?
2: I believe uh, they are, in my own humble opinion. I think so. I think by getting it out in the open and discussing homosexuality is a very, very grave problem indeed. I think they should be locked up you think that they should be put away? Do you think that they're uh, a danger, a menace? Yes, definitely. And what do you suggest we could do about them other than locking them up? Well, Wally could uh, give them homes like they do for the mentally insane. Wow. That's,
0: yeah, quite a clip. We're We're going to link to that horrible video on our website, and there will also be many other disturbing archival videos and clips to choose from there. Please. Come visit a buffet of
3: homophobia. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's really bad. But I think it's very telling that the options she gave were that gay people should either be locked up or put in a mental institution. Because you see, you know, homosexuality was often linked with pedophilia and was also often defined as a mental illness in this time period. Words like insane. And disordered and deviant are used in a lot of the reports that were filed on people who were
3: investigated. Sadly, homosexuality is often seen, you know, as a mental illness. It still is in some places. Yeah. Okay. so you said that the Canadian efforts to drum gay people out of public service started later. Uh, than the U.S. and the U.K. So why was Canada so slow to (laughs) to discriminate? Why were they so slow in the discrimination (laughs) business? (laughs) Because I think we have learned enough doing this podcast to say that, you know, in the 40s and 50s, Canada
0: had, you know, hit its stride in discriminating against a lot of folks. So there was this assumption that there were not a lot of gay men in the public service. You know, that was other countries' problem. It wasn't our problem. So they just didn't consider it to be a thing. But then a couple of things happened to change their minds. The first had to do with a Canadian ambassador to Russia. The ambassador's name was David Johnson, and he was discovered to be gay. And so, too, was one of his clerks.
1: David Johnson, this would have been in the late 50s, was the ambassador to the Soviet Union, he sent one of his clerks home on the supposition that the Russian secret police, the USSR secret police, had tried to entrap this individual because they were homosexual. So this person got sent home, and as part of the investigation that the RCMP engaged in, they found this individual's little sort of black book where they had the names of sexual conducts that they had. They found no evidence that anything was ever given to any Soviet agent on the part of this individual, but they did find that this individual had the names of other public servants uh, in their little black book.
0: The RCMP realized through the investigation over this book of contacts that there were many gay men in the civil service, and some of them had high-level security clearances. So they realized
3: that there was more than one gay person in the department, and they freaked out. You know, how how terrible a gay man knew how to contact other (laughs)
0: men. Yes, ring the alarm. National security is at risk. But that's exactly what they thought. These ambassadors and their staff worked in the Department of External Affairs, and their work involved a lot of travel. And because of that, they were mostly single men who worked there. So the department got targeted because the RCMP and authorities just assumed now this was just a department full of men having sex with other men and sometimes filing things. You know, like.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and occasionally they'd get, you know, some typing of reports done, but it mostly it was just
0: sex. <laughs> so they find this book. David Johnson, the ambassador, was fired and the people in the book were investigated and forced to resign and that, or, or fired. The other thing that happened around this time was the Leo Mantha case. So, this guy, Leo Mantha, was in the Navy. He was drummed out for being gay, and he had had a relationship with another Navy man by the name of Aaron Jenkins. Uh, they broke up. After they broke up, Leo Mantha went onto to the Esquimalt military base and murdered Aaron Jenkins. Mantha was arrested, tried, and he would become the last person to be hung for a crime in BC. His case had a huge ripple effect.
1: As part of this investigation, they also discovered that there were like networks of people engaging in sex with other men that existed in the Navy, that existed in the sort of merchant Marine. So it led them to also think this is a much bigger so-called problem than they thought initially. I mean, initially the RCMP was following sort of like very stereotypical notions of what homosexual men were. So it was like only people who were effeminate, um, were seen by them as a problem and now they begin to realize this is a much much broader thing including a much broader range of men than they'd ever assumed so this is really what leads to this identification in the canadian context of homosexuals as national security risks now, if you're a national security risk it mandates all sorts of procedures against you basically you get cut out of your regular rights you get identified as sort of a threat to the fabric of the nation what it led to in the part of, on the part of the RCMP was an attempt to actually purge all homosexuals from the public service.
3: And I assume this drove many people further into the closet or into hiding.
0: Yeah. But, you know, here's the really interesting thing about that. Gary told me that many people they interviewed for the book said that before the purge happened, they they felt pretty free.
1: So people actually described. For instance, in Victoria, in British Columbia, that things were actually much freer and much more open right, for for men who wanted to have sex with other men, both Mm -hmm. in the public areas and in private areas. This was a a lot freer than it was after it became clear that anyone who was identified as being a homosexual was now of interest to the, the
0: RCMP.
3: People said that they didn't fear losing their jobs over being gay before these investigations started.
0: Yeah, many describe that their social and sexual lives were thriving, but as soon as these investigations began, people started to fear for their lives and livelihoods.
1: Contrary to what a lot of people think, um, one of the things we argue on the basis of, of the research that we did is that the putting in place of the social relations of the closet and living a double life is actually fairly recent in Canadian history. We're really talking about something that happens after World War II, and that really intensifies in the late 50s and into the early 60s. So this this was the major impact that the, these Cold War-based campaigns had on homosexuals in the Canadian context. What it actually did was put in place for many people the social relations of the closet, social relations of having to live a double life. That is, you know, you're out in your private circles, but you perform yourself as being you know, 100% heterosexual when you're at work in the public service or the military.
0: That is a big surprise. Yeah, it was for me too.
3: Huge. So what about women? I'm I'm hearing this mostly being applied to men.
0: Okay, yes. So we're going to talk about the women. And, And the reason we haven't been until now is because a lot of women weren't employed in, you know, higher up jobs in the public service.
3: Okay, so most held jobs that were considered to be Less important. Like a secretary, which is a very important job and crucial to running of these places, but not considered important because they were women and women's labor historically and presently is not valued as much as men's. And these
0: jobs were, I guess, also felt to be less adjacent to national secrets and because of that finding out who and who wasn't a lesbian it just wasn't a priority for the rcmp in the beginning but that began to change
2: these vital military jobs can be done by women a member of the canadian women's army corps can become an operator who releases a soldier or a typist or an equipment tester or she can become a driver
0: That was from the National Film Board of Canada. It's called She Speeds the Victory, and it was a promotional tool to get women to join the military. Right. So, Gary explained how large groups of women started to enter into the public service.
1: So, this obviously creates context in which relationships between women begin to flourish, right? So, there's a sort of contradictory situation that gets set up. By bringing large numbers of women together in the public service and the military, you obviously create more conditions for um, lesbianism to, to emerge more publicly, but then when it does, it's actually considered to be a threat to the types of authority relationships that should exist within the public service or within the military.
3: So there are lesbians that start gravitating to the military because it would be a place where you could meet other women and maybe not be stuck in the gender roles that women were forced into at this time.
0: Yeah, but as women started to get promoted and, you know, kind of rising up through the ranks of public service and the military, that's when they start getting targeted.
1: But if you get promoted to higher positions within the public service, you have to go through more security checks. And that's that raises the possibility that you're going to be discovered to be a lesbian. Um, And many people try to avoid getting promoted um, in the public service or the military because they didn't want to be subject to these types of investigations. That would involve, you know, in the military, military intelligence officers talking to your parents and your friends about who you were, and in the public service could also involve that uh, type of questioning. So there was a major impact on women within uh, the public service in the military.
0: Lesbians became the major focus of these purge campaigns. It included really horrific interrogations by men about these women's sexuality, their partners, their bodies. It was Really invasive. It was verbal and sexual harassment. And for some, it resulted in sexual assault by male military personnel. And all of this increased as women's roles in service increased.
3: And did the purge and investigation follow the same train of thought as they did when they were looking for gay men? Pretty much.
1: The RCMP also had certain criteria for its investigations of women more generally, feminists and lesbians where whereby they actually assumed and it's it's almost ludicrous to, to read it in some ways, but it's almost like there's an assumption, that not following the practices of standard heterosexual femininity was somehow a risk to national security. They would make comments on feminists not, not being very feminine. They would make comments on lesbians being sort of mannish in character. And somehow the suggestion was that in and of itself was some sort of risk to national security, which of course it wasn't, but it reflected the types of, of gendered, patriarchal, masculinist, and anti-feminist perspectives informed what the RCMP was doing during these years. By
3: 1959, the federal government began formal homosexuality screening. A year later, 1,000 public servants and members of the military were seen or suspected or confirmed to be homosexuals and forced to leave their jobs. By 1968, the number increased to 9,000. It is now known as the LGBTQ
0: purge. For many who were driven out, it had devastating consequences. John Watkins was a Canadian diplomat and ambassador to Russia. The RCMP found out he was gay. In October 1964, at a Holiday Inn in Montreal, the police interrogated John Watkins for 27 days, during which he had a heart attack and died instantly. Years later, when the reports were released on the interrogation and his death, the RCMP confirmed that Watkins had died under their watch and also that over the years, the Soviet Union had tried several attempts to blackmail him and failed. John Watkins never gave up Canada. Not once. After the break, Canada builds the fruit machine. I just wanted to take a break to tell you about another CBC podcast I think you might like. It's called Death in Cryptoland. It's a true story about a crypto tycoon, his secret past, his sudden demise, and an online sleuth's obsession to unravel the truth behind his mysterious company. You can check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen.
3: So all these investigations happen, and the RCMP and federal government force people to become informants. Many of these would have been private citizens who were pressured into naming names. But the community resisted. People refused, and the RCMP couldn't figure out who the gay people were. No.
0: And in 1962, the security panel mandates the development of a test. They wanted science to detect who gays and lesbians were, as if it could. But they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on it and hired Frank Robert Wake, the chair of the psychology department from Carleton University, to help them come up with this machine. Remember, homosexuality was seen as a mental illness.
3: So I'm scared for this answer, (laughs) but what did they come up with?
1: The security panel, the RCMP, and eventually the military spent lots of money trying to develop this fruit machine technology at its core was this assumption that your eyes would give yourself away in terms of different types of stimuli. So at the center of it was the pupillary response test, which meant that you were going to be shown um, images of semi-naked nude bodies. um, And the the pupil of your eye would be photographed at, at 32nd intervals, um, and whether they expanded or contracted would be the important thing about whether you were going to be seen as a homosexual or a fruit or not.
3: So if someone showed you a picture of a naked body and your pupils dilated, that meant to them you were a homosexual.
0: That's right. And they took this ridiculous theory very, very seriously.
1: There were other types of tests that were used along with the pupillary response test, including Masculinity, femininity scales, like based on incredible gendered assumptions, and also lists of words that would be said to people and they would see if people's level of anxiety would increase or not, uh, using, um, a, a sweat test. Um, so they would ask homosexually coded words, which were often taken from the, the, le- the sort of slang and language that people were using in bars and clubs, and they would actually ask people these they would use these words with people to see what their reactions were. So it was a battery of tests. Now, it's interesting where the expression fruit machine comes from. RCMP officers were going to be the so-called normal control group brought into the fruit machine research. And many of these men were desperately afraid that even though if they were recruited as normal people to be in this research, they would be found out to be fruits. So that's actually where the expression fruit machine comes from. It's not used officially by the government.
0: So everyone is terrified. Gays and lesbians are being drummed out of their jobs. It it was an incredibly scary time. This goes on all through the 60s. The investigations, the fear of being found out and arrested, and it ripples into all parts of queer culture and life. Here's an extraordinary interview from a CBC radio documentary from 1969, and I think it really points to the amount of harassment that was going on.
2: There are specific problems which affect only certain homosexuals. Clearly, the homosexuals who have the most difficult time are the very effeminate males and the very masculine females. These are the obvious homosexuals. They represent the stereotype. What must be understood is the fact that they are a very distinct minority within homosexual circles, and often get considerable disapproval from the other homosexuals. For one thing, like I said, I'm effeminate by nature. I haven't always been a female impersonator. I've been a normal human being, gone to school, and people go, look at the queer, look at the faggot, and women point at me and point me out to their children and laugh. Unless I'm going through an area, like the slum area, for instance, of, of Vancouver. Uh, I'll walk down Hastings Street, and I won't get any cracks in the people that are down there because they're not accepted from society either. And they believe in what I want to be. And so they accept it that way, but the majority of straight people don't. Have you ever been arrested? Yes, four times. Have you ever been taken to the police station and not charged? Oh, yes. Every time I've been taken, all four times that I was arrested, I was taken to the police station. Why do the police do this? They think it's funny. When you go in, when I was picked up and taken in, uh, the guy that took me in could hardly wait to get me there. He, oh, he was just so excited. I've got a new weirdo. Isn't this great? Have you ever appeared in court? No. They've never had anything to charge me with. I've never done anything wrong. You don't have any other kind of job except no. impersonation and I have to. I've tried other kinds of jobs. I've gone for interviews and had people come right out and tell me I'm sorry too much for a fruit. I mean,
3: that unfortunately sounds... It could be contemporary audio, you know. I Mm -hmm. mean, you can't argue that a lot of gender nonconforming people are still facing a ton of harassment from police and, and lots of other people today.
0: Just generally, yeah. Yeah. The thing about this interview that really stood out for me was that this person talks about how many gay people at the time didn't want to be seen with them. And didn't want to associate with them because they were seen as so outside the norm like their presence would endanger them.
3: Yeah. So if this time period was all about defining the enemy and connecting that to defining gender, if a person did not adhere to those gender stereotypes, then they
0: were seen as dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the fruit machine was part of all of this, but surprise, it didn't work.
1: It never could actually work. It was based on, you know, fatally flawed assumptions. You know, you couldn't even deal with the different distances that people have on their faces between the pupils in their eyes, right? So there were there were a whole series of problems, and it was also based on incredibly flawed assumptions that all homosexuals or, or all lesbians would have, or all heterosexuals for that matter, um, would have the same types of responses um, to these types of images. And if you were attracted to both sets of images, this would obviously have been something that they really hadn't come to terms with.
0: By 1967, they abandoned the fruit machine. And this was the same year that outrage arose because of
3: the Supreme Court of Canada upheld a life-in-prison sentence for Everett Klippert. Uh We talked about him a bit in our episode called The Golden Boy.
1: Now, all Clippert had ever done was engage in consensual homosexual acts. But what they actually did when they sentenced him as a dangerous sexual offender was basically say... If you were a homosexual man and you continue to engage in homosexual sex with other males, that you could be sentenced to be a dangerous sexual offender. Now, this is what sets the stage for it speeds up a law reform process that was already happening that was based on the organizing of early gay and lesbian networks in the Canadian state.
0: So this was a huge case and really seen as a turning point by some a revision of the criminal code happens, and it actually led to this famous line from then Prime Minister Pierre Elliott
2: Trudeau. I think the the view we take here is that uh, there's no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation.
0: And so did they release Clipper? No. He actually did two more years before he even got out. So that's why it's it's seen as a turning point by some, but If you read overviews of this time, it kind of ends there. Like in 1969, Trudeau said this thing and gay people were released from the bonds of patriarchal heteronormative society. But that's not what happened. I mean, he was still in jail.
1: First of all, it's important to recognize what the 69 criminal code reform was. It was not the legalization or decriminalization of homosexuality. What it was was simply providing exemptions for two sections of the criminal code. Gross indecency, which was often but not only applied to oral sex, and uh, buggery, which could cover anal sex at that point in time. So what it meant was these would no longer be criminal activities if they were engaged in by only two people in private, and the privacy was, the private realm was defined very narrowly. There was no direct relationship at all Between the 69 criminal code reform and the national security practices of the Canadian state directed against gay men and lesbians. Um, And I think some people have made the assumption that somehow there was and there really wasn't. So that the the purge campaigns in the public service and the military continued on basically just as they had before um, following the 69 criminal code reform.
0: So they kept investigating people well into the 70s the 80s and the 90s. Daryl Wood knows. She's busy in a Halifax rooming house,
3: writing a book on what it's like to be a lesbian in the Canadian Armed Forces, and what happens when they find out about you. Private Wood was a clerk for the military police at the Navy base. She was also in love with another woman soldier, an affair that lasted two years before they were found out. Her army days ended here in an interrogation room when she admitted that she was a lesbian.
2: I, I felt as though I'd been violated, right? Um, my
3: my personal life, my, my sexual life had, had was put into the open. I mean, men standing around interrogating you about um, what you do in bed with someone. I mean, it's cross. It, it's, uh, I was very angry. It's a witch hunt. They, um, It's a popular term used for going after people who are homosexual in the forces. Every time someone is um, interrogated, or or questioned, or investigated. What advice would you give to homosexuals who are in the armed forces and have not been found out?
0: Um, It's not worth it. Get out and be who you are. In 1986, Lieutenant Michelle Douglas was discharged from the military for being a lesbian. She decided to fight back, and so she sued. In 1992, the military settled out of court, and that marked the end of its efforts to try and purge queer people from its ranks.
3: In 2017, Justin Trudeau issued a formal apology to LGBTQ civil servants and the military on behalf of the Canadian government.
1: Yes, I was actually there. Um, in the House of Commons when he read the apology statement. I was involved in a group called We Demand an Apology. So what was really important was in talking to people who had been purged, they wanted an official apology that would be really clear that this would never happen again, and not just to them, but to other groups of people in Canadian society.
0: People wanted compensation for the harm that was caused. They also wanted the record of convictions for people that were charged during the purge campaign to be expunged.
1: Right. I was very saddened when I was hearing it when I remembered all the people who've been purged who had died prior to the apology statement being made. Because like many of the people that we interviewed and we talked to are no longer around and couldn't get no benefit at all from this apology statement. But there's one... One line in it that really struck me um, when I was hearing it, which is the only explanation Justin Trudeau provided for the Purge campaigns was the thinking of the, thinking the day. The thinking of the day was that all non-heterosexual Canadians would automatically be at increased risk of blackmail by our adversaries due to what was called character weakness. And. If you actually think about it that that's really like a cop out it doesn't recognize that the Canadian state actively tried to put in place these measures for defining homosexuals lesbians and gay men queer people as being risked to national security that so the Canadian state at its highest levels actually expelled us from the fabric of the nation and took away our rights it's not fully and You know, it's not described at all when you sort of use the cop-out. It was just the thinking of the day, right?
3: The Secret Life of Canada was recorded in Jotjage, also known as Montreal, the territory of the ginnat
0: And recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by me, Leah Simone Bowen, and me, Phelan Johnson. Research assistance by Andrea Eidinger. Story
3: editing by Yvette Nolan, with mixing and sound design by Braden Alexander.
0: Special thanks to Kate Zeman and the CBC Library Archives. Our logo is by Badawogan Illustration and Design. Our digital producer is Roshni Nair. Senior producer is Tina Verma. And Arif Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts.